Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, Reese Shearsmith, star and writer of League of Gentlemen and Inside Number 9 on his new movie, In the Earth. Phil Linnett, Songs for While I'm Away, hit cinemas this weekend, and I chat to its director, Ema Reynolds, about bringing Philo to the big screen. Mark Ryle reviews this week's new releases, which include Anthony Hopkins' incredible performance in The Father, plus hurling legend and renaissance man Tony Griffin on his favourite movie. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at Newstalk.com. Good weekend to you all. I got the jab on Thursday. Hooray, the elation for something that, you know, didn't exist 16 months ago. The joy of coming out of that vaccine centre having got my first dose was incredible. Even getting the text, it's like the chosen. Anyway, we're all going to be chosen uh, and half of us have been already and your time will come. And uh, it's it's a nice feeling. It really is. Now, I have a very busy show this week, so I'm going to have to dispense with my normal. You should watch this on TV because there's just too much happening. Uh, chief among all that's happening is this. We had to send a rescue party in to get a group out a couple of months ago. They got lost. Why didn't they use GPRS? There's no fun reception in there. People get a bit funny in the woods sometimes. You worried she's going to get you? Yeah, who is it? It's a local folktale. She's the spirit of the woods. They tell me his story. These are his memories. Can you feel him now? In the earth. No, I don't know what you mean. I think you do. Yes, now that was a clip from In the Earth, which will be in Irish cinemas from next Thursday. And it's from acclaimed director Ben Wheatley, who gave us things like Sightseers, High Rise, The Kill List, and last year's version of Rebecca, which is still on Netflix, which I interviewed him about, actually. And uh, he's a kind of horror slash comedic, all sorts of kind of styles. A very unique movie maker. And in this movie, it takes place, strangely, when the world is in the grip of a virus. It's an unnamed virus, (laughs) which is quite odd. And a scientist played by Joel Fry and a park ranger, they kind of venture into this forest where this scientist is trying to find another scientist about 15 miles in this forest in a medical facility where they're trying to, you know, find some cures from this forest to help with this virus. But this forest is a very strange place and it's inhabited by weird forces. Chief among them is a man called Zach, who appears to be this guy who's just decided to live in a forest and is living off the grid but there may be a bit more to Zach than that. And Zach is played by Reese Shearsmith, who people know as the writer and star, one of the writers and stars of things like The League of Gentlemen, that great English TV show, uh, Psychoville, and lately Inside Number Nine, which people love. Different every week, all about the number nine features in it in some way, like on a door, or but it has these different anthology stories each week with different actors. Really good show. Anyway, I spoke to Reese about In the Earth, League of Gentlemen, and all sorts of other things. Take a listen to this. 
I spoke to Ben for Rebecca, uh, which he did last year. And I actually said to him during the interview, you are so unpretentious for a director because he knows his movies inside out, but he's bullshit free, you know? And I'm wondering, this is his third, the third movie I think you've done with him. What's a Ben Weekly set like? Is it a pretentious free working environment? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, Ben is very um, sort of happy to have any suggestion thrown at him. He will not. Is in no way megalomaniacal about how it's this way, my way or the highway. You know, he's very collaborative, and I get on with him very well because I think we've got a, a sort of shared interest in in horror and comedy as well. And it's um, a thrill to work with him. He's we're always pushing each other to try and get the right moment or the way of do, way of doing something and he's you know he doesn't give lots of notes about mm -hmm. character he's quite oblique in the way that he'll give you snippets but never the full picture yeah. and i think he likes that then he's not he's left there's a, an air of mystery about you filling in the gaps as the audience yeah and so that's an interesting um way of working but he's he's fantastic his sets are i mean it was an extraordinary experience doing in the earth because of all pandemic and Covid and uh, that was a strange experience and we were out I think one of the few if the, the only people doing it at that time in August but, yeah so it was it was great but all PPE'd up but always thrilled <laughs> to work with him and that he told me about the film in April and then we were doing it in August amazing so be, there's a couple of movies made in lockdown and and you know they, they tend to happen very fast because of all the stuff that was going on in the world was this a fast shoot in that way then you showed think, up at a forest and cracked on through it yeah it was pretty much yeah but I mean I think regardless of COVID it might have been the same length we did that <laughs> field in England in 14 days okay I think he just knows he calibrates very well what is required you know he knows he's not making Spider-Man yeah so he's <laughs> Now, so, that would be interesting. Not yeah. that In the Earth is an interesting one. Yes, yeah. But yeah, it was very quick, very speedy, and very um, enjoyable. Your character, Zach, is funny. When he sure showed up, I was like, oh, that's that's Reese, because you looked a bit like Robert Plant. And I mean that as a compliment, as a big Led Zeppelin fan. The character, like, I don't want to give any spoilers, but did it really appeal to you when you read him? Because at first he's this dude living off the grid with long hair, and then it takes a very Ben Wheatley, yeah. almost League of Gentlemen turn. Yeah, absolutely. I know it was a great um, thrill to read it for the first time and see the trajectory of that character and where he was going to, where he starts and where he ends up. Mm. It was a great um, thrill to think I was going to be able to play that. I remember saying to Ben at one point when I'm later in the film, when things have gone a bit wrong, <laughs> thank you so much for writing this part for me. And I was really genuinely having a time of my life, I think. So it was, it was great to... Get, play the extremes of, uh, of of characters, you know, and, and Zach, for a long time, I'd keep a lid on it. And I think one of the creepier parts of, about him is that he's very certain and sure and calm about what he, his belief is. Mm. And, you know, all hell breaks loose as we go down the road. Yeah. People know you because of your love of horror as well as other things. And there was a lot of times in this, I was thinking, and I don't mean it as a criticism or anything, but, you know, ancestors of this movie from everything Texas Chainsaw Massacre like you could you run out of you know you'd never run out of a list of horror movies did you feel some of those when you were making it this reminds me of this or? oh yes very definitely yeah I mean and it's sort of part of the game of the film I think that it mm. feels like you go through different genres of film in, yeah. the, in the journey of this film it's weirdly starts like a strange buddy movie and then we go <laughs> to a, 
a weird Texas Chainsaw slasher in the woods type scenario, and then we end up in Quatermass in its science. Yeah. science. And so that was all part of, I think, the the um, the tussle of the argument, if you like, that Ben wanted to explore with this, which is human man and human beings need to make stories out of to have meaning. You know, the mm. narratives we tell each other and ourselves get us through day by day in extreme circumstances. And Ben and Zach's got a version of that that clarifies in his mind why he's ended up the way he's ended up and what he's worshiping and Dr. Wendell, as the science version, has the same belief, different trajectory, but and they're equally mad, both of them. They're just stories, they're mad storytelling devices that allow a way through. Yeah. I think that's the exploration of the film, really. Yeah. Can I just ask you briefly about Inside Number Nine, uh, which is continuing to have a very long life. And for people who don't know, it's an intriguing show where the number nine plays a small and sometimes important role. And you have all these different stories. Is, is the popularity of that, I was thinking, almost something against the, the era of streaming and where you have to you know with some shows almost give over your entire life to them i adore yeah. game of thrones but i was saying to someone when i watched the first episode i was a single guy by the finale I came around i was married with three children yes. whereas inside number nine not to do it a disservice but you can watch one yes. and that's it there's something to be said for that tv in the era that we live in i guess absolutely yeah i think it's uh, the resurgence of the anthology series and and format is is it's not a coincidence that i think it's happened in the wake of all these the, the commitment that you're expected to give to yeah. huge box sets that last for decades you know, <laughs> how many years of your life have you got left yeah. number nine and, and one-off stories a very appealing thing to just have a good it's like being told a great little joke you know beginning mm. and get out watch them in any order no commitment and i think that is a side of humans now that we like you know everything is in short tiny bites down to yes block. you get sent something on a, a, a youtube clip that's a minute one minute 30 and you're like i can't i've not got time for this <laughs> so you know people like things in short bursts <laughs> yeah and do you like you know you run out of all the actors you've had in it but like timothy west ireland's own fiona shaw do you every season come up with a kind of i wonder if we can get these people yeah, toward the end of when we've written them, we don't ever write them with anyone in mind because you're never sure you could get them and then you'd be heartbroken if you yes. never that person. So toward when it gets to the point of casting and you've got you've got three weeks before you're doing it, then the, the, the net is cast and you get who would be good for this part or be interesting in this part and you get availabilities and if they're free, then you put a checklist of number one at the top and then if they say no, you move down to the next one. I mean, we've never really had anyone say no and everyone is thrilled to be asked. So that's because they're a very appealing time frame for these. Yeah. Guys. Filmed in a week. You know, it's very easy to be just sl sl slot it in if you're an actor. Yeah. So I, I think I never uh, thought yeah, of that. We just, yeah. Yeah. They, they're like, oh, six days. Yes, I can do that. Yeah, OK. Yeah. yeah. I presume you pay them something as well. So and there's, there's, <laughs> like, yeah, they get their, their travel card. <laughs> Listen, finally, and, you know, I'm sure you haven't done an interview where this hasn't come up, but for. Men in their 30s and 40s, you know, your face was probably on some of the bedroom walls with your other pals in League of Gentlemen. It's, you know, it was just remarkable TV. They call it a cult, but I think it was probably too popular to be a cult. But I'm just wondering, looking back now, all these years, and particularly at the, the, the TV shows that, you know, change so much of TV, and clearly I'm a fanboy of it. But looking back now, can you remember what you were sitting down to do 
or were you just actually, you know, pals trying to make a TV show or did you have a, I'm sure you didn't have a vision or a grand, but it was such a revolutionary kind of TV show. I'm wondering at source, what were you guys with Steve and Mark, what were you actually thinking of doing when you sat down to write it and make it all those years ago? Well, I think it genuinely was making something that we found funny. It was sort of born of being actors mm. writing comedy and wanting to tell sort of longer stories with, um, like on, you know, all began on stage, and we just mm. wanted to tell to have some really good tight sketches. A lot of it was the uh, the need to make it um, polished as okay. a live show, and the characters came from. Uh, awkward situations, people we'd known, a funny jumping off point of a man trying to tell a joke and mm. never, not letting it go. And so, but because we're all actors, we really wanted to give, breathe real life into these characters. Sketch initially, you know, you think of a sketch as something very quickly drawn, but we wanted to really have you care about these people. And when it came to do the TV, we were suddenly fleshing out the, what do these people look like? We've only ever done it on stage with very mm -hmm. costume. And I, we never had a master plan. We just did it because we couldn't not do it on the, on the mm. fringe. And we went, we took it to the Edinburgh Festival. And there, people that didn't know us laughed at it. And that was the most thrilling time because it was like, it actually works. It's not just our friends being kind. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, listen, we, we cared a lot. Uh, me, most of all. Thanks very much Thank for talking to me, Reese. Cheers. John, see you. Yes, Reese Shearsmith there talking to me about Inside Number Nine, The League of Gentlemen, and his new movie, In the Earth, which is in cinemas and directed by Ben Wheatley next Thursday, the 17th of June, here in Ireland. I'm still quite ebullient about, you know, saying in cinemas, because I haven't said that for a long time. And there is a lot in cinemas. Uh, and after the break, we'll be talking about a great movie that's coming to cinemas this weekend, as of this Friday, and that's Phil Linnett, Songs for While I'm Away. Screen Time on News Talk. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talk's TV and movie show. Phil Linnett's Songs for While I'm Away is a fantastic new documentary. Well, all about Phil Linnett, obviously, that gets a cinema release finally this Friday. That's the 11th of June. It tells, I suppose, the pre previously reasonably well-known story of the boy from Crumlin who became, well, a rock icon before we even knew what rock icons were in Ireland. Uh, but it does this story in a very different and unique way. It's directed by Emer Reynolds, and I'm delighted to say she joins me now. Hi, Emer. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on. So listen, I said at the start there, you know, it's a well-known story. It certainly is to me, but but I'm a big fan. And that's not to do the disservice because I was saying to you before we came on, you know, does the world need another documentary about Phil Linnett? And I watched your movie and it certainly does based on this documentary because it's wonderful from start to finish. But what was your motivation for doing it? People might know the last thing you directed was a documentary about the Voyager program, uh, all about this wonderful object out in space. So why did you want to make a documentary about Phil Linnett? I was a huge Thin Lizzy and Phil Linnett fan from when I was a teenager. And Alan Marr, one of the films, one of this film's producers approached me, having seen The Farthest and hearing I was a Thin Lizzy fan, uh, basically approached me to see what I'd be interested in coming on board. They were looking at developing um, this feature about Phil Linnett. And I nearly bit his arm off because it, <laughs> it was a dream come true for me, you know, to to get a chance to to learn more about the man behind the rock star. You know, I, I like all fans. I probably just saw him as this incredibly iconic, confident, you know, incredible performer with the huge legs and the hair and the twinkle. 
and not really knowing an awful lot about his Phil, the private man, you know, the man behind the mask. So mm. a massive opportunity for me and, and my team to to really get to know him, you know, and get to know maybe the story behind what, what you might see as the image. One, There's a couple of things that work really well, but one of them is the music sounds like I was hearing it for the first time, even though like a lot of people, a lot of these songs are the soundtrack to my life. Did you do something different with the music? Because it sounds so fresh. Yeah, no, we didn't do anything different. Um, obviously, some of, some of it has been remastered over the years, you know, and it has been given a lot of love over the years. Um, we had a wonderful sound mixer, Brendan Rehill, who did an incredible job. And some of the the desire at certain parts in the film was definitely, you know, to have our audience feel if they could, if they see it in the cinema, hopefully they would mm. get the experience, you know, to feel almost like they were at a Tin Lizzy gig, you know, to generate that that frisson, that visceral excitement you get while standing there. Yeah. So we worked very hard to, you know, to to really give the, the song center stage because the, the film is predicated, you know, utterly on the idea of Philip's life through his songs, you know, yeah. that really t allowing the stories in the absence of having the ability, sadly, to interview the great man himself. You know, the, the, the thesis was to allow the songs to, to talk for him, you know, that this was a direct a direct line into his heart, into his thinking, into his experiences, you know, and to allow the songs take centre stage in that way. Yeah, and I would second what you're saying in terms of seeing it in the cinema because you, you want to hear this music with that big Dolby surround sound. Another thing that's really impressive about it is I'm sure people like Huey Lewis, Midjour, and possibly even James Hetfield are asked to talk about Phil Linnett all the time and respectively respect fully or not respectfully decline was it hard to get those heavyweights adam clayton's there as well no it wasn't hard to get them um once they you know clued into the sort of film we were trying to make you know i think my team a wonderful team of researchers reached out to them and 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 expressed that you know the tone of the film from the start was coming from a place of of love and compassion and tenderness rather than salacious interest in you know mm. The, the, the flaming star that burned too bright and yeah. went out that 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 cliche of perhaps yeah. of a rock a rock icon falling sadly the way philip did so really talking to them at, at heart you know about what we wanted to do in terms of fill the man and, and to tell the story in a tender and poetic and compassionate way and all of them have all of them have a connection to him as opposed to just being um you know, voices from the music industry who will comment on on him. You know, they were yeah. all friends of his. They all knew him. They all, some of them worked with him. So they were definitely coming from a, a place of intimacy and friendship and, and wanted to be on this journey with us. Midjour, when he shows up on the American tour on stage, I, I don't know how you got that material, but he looks like a 17-year-old who was reading smash hits on the plane. It's just delightful to see him on stage. That 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 clip of him playing uh, Waiting for an Alibi um, yeah. literally makes me laugh every single time I see it because, he, you know, he's straight out of that 80s moment with the big shoulders and the, yeah. you know, the hair and completely out of sync with the look of, Phil, of Tin Lizzy. So... I think it's wonderful. He, and he definitely does look a like a child on Christmas. He's so excited. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was funny. You kind of put your finger on it there. You, you made something clear to me that I guess I was thinking on some level and that it isn't 
you know, a story you're trying to tell, this star who burns too bright. And I was thinking, you don't labor the tragedy. I mean, obviously it's there, but I don't think the word heroine is even mentioned. Now, here am I bringing it up, so forgive me, but I just mean that was clearly part of your raison d'etre, that it wasn't going to be, you know, the, not that he was in the 27 Club, but another rags to, you know, star shine too bright story. That was your, your, your raison d'etre from the beginning, obviously. Yeah, they, you know, Scott, um, you know, who was also in the grip of that mm. addiction at the same time, he mentions class A drugs and he mentions, you know, that the point in their history when drugs started to become, you know, more, more, more dangerous, more, more of a darker side rather than just, you know, the recreational thing they were talking about they, they were doing in the early days. So we, we do obviously deal with that part of his life, that that sad addiction and that sad ending dying so young with small children you know it's a tragic mm. story but i'm I, i'm just of the view that his life and his creativity and his work is more interesting than his death and, yeah and and really you know I, I wanted to treat his sad his sad addiction and death with the compassion i would for anybody you know to sure. there but for the grace of god go i kind of a feeling you know that it's yeah. it, it's not here to entertain us it, it, it's just a, it's a sad part of his life and must be must be marked but it's it's not what the film is about the film is about as i say his life his poetry his dreams you know his character he was so fun he had such an adventure and and really to have come from such a working class part of dublin in the 50s and to to scale such incredible heights to be on the the stage at the sydney opera house in front mm. of 100 100,000 screaming fans you know it's an incredible story and his music is incredible Absolutely. No argument for me. And it's funny, there, there's a bit where Scott actually says, oh, I guess we're going to get to the drugs now, which yeah. which I thought was quite pointed. But that's another thing about the movie. His sh Phil's sheer delight at times, like when he's on stage opposite the Opera House in Sydney, I think there were shots of him. It looked like Newcastle at times. I was trying, I was mixing up my bridges. But when he's on these massive stages, he was elated. Like he had that thing that this was where he belonged and he was probably at his house happiest like Bruce Springsteen or Elvis or any of those people like he had that joy yeah they thought they Jim Fitzpatrick talks about him in the film that F Philip was born to be a rock star you know and I think mm -hmm. Caroline his his wife said to me at one stage that he was a rock star while he was brushing his teeth you know he just, he just had that charisma he had that that incredible uh, you know excitement and yet the film you know I think is an also an, an a wonderful part of the story we learned that he was a pretty shy man, a pretty private yeah. man, and he almost created this rock star persona, you know, as a vehicle, as armor, as Adam Clayton says in the film, in order to to be able to get through that, you know. So he wasn't a natural. You know, he had he he was like us all. He he was all sides of a coin, you know. He wasn't he wasn't just incredibly charismatic and confident, you know. He was also shy and and insecure, and you know, and and that makes him human, like us all, and and his story resonates at that because of that it certainly does another thing that comes out in the movie with again great clips and footage you found that he was always very keen to assert certain his irishness uh whether it was in the uk or america or wherever he was being interviewed that this was part of what he was selling that was front and center that came across in the film anyway yeah, and it's you know it's a it's a gorgeous part of his. I think it's a gorgeous part of why we in Ireland love him. Um, mm. He kept his accent, you know. He never, he didn't dilute it. It doesn't become kind of mid Atlantic, you know. He's got a proper big full on Dublin accent all the yeah. way through his life. Kept a kept a home in Hoth, made his wife 
come to come home to have the children in Hollis Street, you know, which is such yeah. a classic Irish emigrant experience, you know, that you want your children to be Irish. So he's very proud of Ireland, very proud of his Irish heritage, and yet was born in England, you know, and, and yeah. moved here at age seven. So it's a very modern story. It's a very modern story for the 50s and 60s of of how Irish people are, you know, and yeah. and Ireland is part of his singing as well, you know, his songwriting. He's writing about Irish myths and legends, Irish poetry, you know. So it's it's great to see his pride in it, and uh, I, I love that. I love a lot of those songs. I I, I love seeing that that you know that that idea of the the man comes out of his childhood and out of his education and out of his experience. He had a very happy childhood in Crumlin, so you know it's lovely to see him staying as a proud Irishman his whole life. Yeah, one of the other things that I hadn't realized was their whole American odyssey. And I suppose, like, even though you've great footage of gigs in America that seem to be going swimmingly, they never quite broke America to the extent that, you know, what we say when we mean breaking America, like the way you two did or the Cranberries or whatever. How much of a source of regret was that for him, do you think? Um, yeah, I'm not wanting to speak for him. I think I think profound regret. I think profound mm. regret for them all that it never really you know, absolutely broke through. They had a good degree of success. And even in the States now, you'll find certain cities on the coasts, you know, you'll, you'll find certain cities where they're huge and and, and um, remembered. Um, but never, The Boys Are Back in Town was a big breakout hit and, and a number of other songs that made it through, but they never really achieved the success. As you say, maybe he might've been dreaming of success like Queen or, you know, something huge mm. like that. But I think a great source of, of regret to him, but he says in the film, and I think this is also who he was, he, he put a positive spin on it. He said, yeah, maybe we didn't have luck on our side in America, and they certainly didn't. Three three tours in a row kind of fell down for various reasons. Yeah. But he said, we didn't have luck on our side, but overall, and he's right, worldwide, in Europe, in Asia, in Australia, they were massive. You know, they were a very lucky and very loved band. So I, I, I think I find that in his interviews that that he will he'll he'll be honest to to express the regret and then also put a a positive spin on it and that's that's who he was yeah well the film is is absolutely delightful for lizzie fans fellow fans and for just music fans in general and fans of a an irish icon now i mentioned i think you should see it in the cinema you've had this a while so you must be delighted that it's finally getting a big screen release on friday the 11th of june I know we're, we're this is our uh, third or fourth time we were supposed to release last summer then last October then we were supposed to release on uh, Stevens's day but the pandemic shut down cinemas just before Christmas so it's a third fourth time lucky and you know it, it, it I can't wait to get it into the cinemas for Irish audiences to see it up on the big screen where, mm. where really it's designed to be seen it's loud it's colorful it's sexy the music is is ringing out in your ears you know and it's a it's a, a proper cinema experience so uh Really excited that it's finally it's finally going to be up on the big screen and, and putting Phil centre stage back where he belongs. Well, so say all of us. Phil Lynott, Songs for While I'm Away, will be in cinemas, the place where you should see it, on Friday the 11th of June. Its director, Emer Reynolds, was talking to me. Emer, thank you very much and good luck with it. Thank you so much. One Monday morning, we called down to the headmaster and he goes, what do you want to do? Do you want a good, steady trade, a job, or do you want to be a dirty rock musician? The soft, silky tones of Phil Linnett there, just a little snatch of audio as heard from the wonderful uh, Phil Linnett.
Songs for While I'm Away, directed by Ema Reynolds. And it is a glorious tribute to the man. Uh, he had that great speaking voice as well. It's funny, his wife, Caroline, in the movie says, you know, he had this gorgeous voice. It sounded like he was in bed whenever he was talking to you. And she said a lot of the time he was. A great movie. Yes, now we turn to some other new releases this week, which include finally arriving in Ireland in cinemas, The Father, which Anthony Hopkins won an Oscar for. We're also looking at the new Bob Odenkirk movie, Nobody, and Angelina Jolie in Those Who Wish Me Dead. I'm joined now by my regular partner in crime, Mark Royal. Mark, how are you? I'm good, John. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. I was saying earlier in the show, I got my first jab and you have two now. So, you know, finally, we have something in common. I'm only 25. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) I I just look older. It was a clerical error. (laughs) Well, listen, uh, The Father is the big new release of the week, which is in cinemas from this Friday. Uh, Just tell our listeners what's happening in The Father. Yeah, you wait all year for an Anthony Hopkins movie and then two arrive at once. Um, This is the first movie directed by the playwright uh, Florian Zeller, and it's based on his own play. And um, it's it's a profoundly affecting and at times it can be absolutely devastating piece of work. Mm. And I think there are moments in this that are, that will stay with you for a very long time. There's certainly moments that stayed with me. Um, Anthony Hopkins plays a character, character called Anthony, who is an 80 year old with progressive dementia. And Olivia Coleman is Anthony's daughter, Anne. And Anne has tried everything she can think of to improve both her father's situation and her own. And nothing has worked, obviously. And during moments of lucidity, Anthony remains resolutely determined to keep his independence and to stay at home in his own flat. And as the film begins, he has just fallen out with another healthcare assistant and his daughter is at the end of her rope. Yes. What I, and I don't want to jump ahead, but what I thought was brilliant about it and which is a a big part of the movie is that it shows the, and I, I said this earlier in the week, the phenomenology as in the conscious state of a person with dementia, because you see a lot of the movie through Anthony Hopkins and him mixing up different people and the sheer frustration of him not knowing what's going on at times and then at other times when he's lucid comparing that reality to his unlucid state it's just it was spellbinding and tragic and wonderful cinema in equal measure it is it is like a conversation from five years ago might have just happened Mm. um you know obviously dementia is is the the the, the cruelest of 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 fates yeah condition that that you know it lays waste to everything in its path and if i'd say most of us will have known someone with the condition and will be aware of the consequences and if you don't then you should count yourself very lucky um but what yeah what the father does and it does very very well is is to put you inside the head of a person suffering from dementia uh, whether you want to be there or not and um there are constants that anthony that's the character now. Every time I'm talking about Anthony, you can presume I'm talking about the character in the movie. And there are constants that he he clings to and he goes back to over and over again, like his watch that he's he's convinced uh, people are trying to steal from him and his favorite daughter, who is not Olivia Coleman, mm. that she is going to come and visit him soon. But these constants keep on slipping from him. And there are elements of horror here in the, I suppose, the corridors and the, the shifting surroundings and a, a door that led to a hospital room in a previous scene now leads into a cupboard and the furniture in the room is is subtly changed so you're never quite sure where you are and time 
is warped and the narrative is is non-linear, I suppose. And that extends as well to the defaces around Anthony as well. Yeah. Um, as we said, Olivia Coleman plays the daughter, but then in other scenes, uh, it's played by Olivia Williams and her husband is in the main played by Rufus Sewell. But then in other scenes, it's Mark Gatiss. So it's, mm. it's, it's a, it puts you in the head of the person with dementia. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny you said horror there because I hadn't thought of that. And it's certainly not a horror, but I guess the way the rules change. No, it's change, not, but there's, there's elements of it. From, yeah. And of course, you know, dementia is is a horror in, yeah. in, in lots of ways. So maybe that point is well made. The other thing, that, another point I want to make, well made or not, is also that Olivia Coleman is brilliant in it as the daughter who's torn between, you know, stoic almost british let's keep going and utter heartbreak at the demise of her father and her own resolve and and sometimes lack of resolve to try and eke out her own life uh outside of her father like she is brilliant in it i know anthony hopkins is rightly getting lots of plaudits but olivia coleman is is fantastic as well she is i would i would cast olivia coleman in everything um Mm. i don't think there's anything that she can't do but this character Anne. It's it's definitely her her stock in trade, you know, putting on a brave face while she's being mercilessly attacked and trying to smile while, you know, she's she's under <laughs> she's she's getting it in the neck. That that's what she does really really well. Yeah. Um, now, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say we could talk about this movie for hours really because there's so much going on in it but we, we'll round out soon because we've other movies to get to but I said Anthony Hopkins getting all the plaudits and we can't forget Olivia Coleman but just to take the truck back yeah. Anthony Hopkins is sensational in it and and you know up until I'd seen this it was the only Oscar contender for all the movies I, that I hadn't seen and I, I kind of thought why haven't they given it to Chadwick Boseman and you know Anthony Hopkins playing an aging person it just seems too obvious let's give it to Anthony Hopkins and then I saw it and, and yeah. not that the Oscars really mean anything but if you had to take a pick I do think it was the best performance by a male in yeah. a leading role having yeah, watched yeah. it he's brilliant he is it's well deserved it's a it's a, a I think a, a late career highlight anyway mm. um I think the the one the line that really hit me was, I think he says something like, I feel as though I'm losing all of my leaves. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's just heartbreaking. But he, he yeah. goes from, uh, you know, paranoia and aggression to to fear. And then ultimately what, what you're left with is it's an 80-year-old man who's who's crying for his mummy. And it's just, it really is heartbreaking. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's so sad. But in a way, you know, it's like saying water is wet. You know, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a sad, sad movie. But it is brilliantly executed. It really is. What would you say stars wise? I'm going to give it a four. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm with you as well. I'm going to give it a four. It's deeply affecting movie. Let's take a quick clip. Oh, I was a dancer. Were you? Yes. Dad. What? You were an engineer. What do you know about it? Yes, tap dancing was my specialty. Really? You seem surprised. Yeah, a little bit. Why? Don't you believe me? Or you find that difficult to imagine? <laughs> of course, it's just I've I've always loved tap dancing. You really? Wow! I'm still great at it. I'll show you. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Jolly good. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I know. I know. She reminds me of who? It's Lucy. Lucy when she was younger. Lucy. Yeah, my other daughter. <laughs> That's right. There's a resemblance, don't you think? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yes. Her unbearable habit of laughing inanely. 
I had you there, didn't I? A clip there from The Father, starring Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman. Mark and I gave it four. It is in the cinema from this Friday, and I would suggest you go and see it because it is a, an immense piece of movie making. Now, something very different, Mark, is Bob Odenkirk in Nobody. Indeed, yeah. In a nutshell, um, this is Bob Odenkirk doing a normcore John Wick Um <laughs> Odenkirk plays uh, a vigilante in chinos and a polo shirt called Hutch Mansell. Um, Hutch is an accountant. He's working for his father-in-law. He commutes on the bus. He forgets to put the bins out. and He, he puts for- them out too late and chases the bin truck down the road. Exactly. We've all yeah. been there. Well, he's, su- he's, he's such a non-entity that his wife and kids practically walk through him. Mm. Um, but Hutch used to be a state-sanctioned assassin and then he made the decision to retire and to live as normal a life as possible and then uh, a middle of the night home invasion and his daughter's stolen kitty cat bracelet uh, sets in motion a chain of events that puts Odenkirk at odds with the Russian mafia. Yes. And then ensues something along the lines of a kind of humorous taken or John Wick kind of thing with Bob Odenkirk as a kind of unlikely but charming vigilante badass. It is a very, yeah, he's very unlikely. I mean, he wouldn't be the first actor you'd think of for a part like this. Um, it, it, it has a great cold open with Odenkirk sitting in a police interview with a packet of cigarettes, a tin of tuna, a kitten, <laughs> and the original Van yeah. Gogh's bedroom at Arles. Yeah. And I think a lot of the work is done in the first 15 minutes. The setup is so intriguing and well, well handled that I was already invested in this story. Yeah. And therefore, I was more likely to forgive some of the, the movie's less impressive elements later on. So I was already sold on this by the time that I realized that, that the final act gets a bit Death Wish meets Home Alone. Or yeah. that it suffers slightly from crap villain syndrome, if I can make something like that up. Yeah, um, I think. did you not think, though, that crap villains were meant to be kind of comic book and humorous? Maybe? Possibly. I mean, it's very tongue-in-cheek, the whole thing. I just thought yeah. that the, the Russian bad guy, I think he was played by, is it Alexei Serbyakov? Yeah, I just found him a bit one-dimensional. Mm. Yeah. Um, Nothing that, I mean, the thing about this is that it, it's very derivative and it's not particularly original. The script is by uh, Derek Kolstad, who who has written all three John Wick movies. So he's nothing if not consistent. <laughs> um, yeah. And he, I'll, yeah, a lot of it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I think if you're willing to park your sense of disbelief, and I was, then it is a lot of fun. Yeah, I think I completely agree with you. I think it's daft but entertaining and the, the opening 15 minutes have you hook, line and sinker. And my wife who watched it with me knew nothing about it mm. and just sat down and she had the same kind of like at about 15 minutes in, she was like, Oh, I like this, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then at the end kind of felt the same way. Yeah. I mean, she's used to daft company all the time, obviously, <laughs> but had the same feeling of, you know, that was a bit bizarre, but it was fun. We watched the whole way through. So yeah, yeah. I think we're in agreement on that one. What yeah. would you say stars wise? Um, I'm going to give it three and a half. It really, it worked for me, you know. Wow. I'm going to give it three and a half as well. It also worked for me. (laughs) 
Uh, great. Now, listen, the last movie is Angelina Jolie. This hasn't happened mm. in a while, but I actually, this is a sign of the cinema's reopening, but I actually haven't got to see this. So those who wish me dead, tell yeah. us quickly what's going on here. I don't think you want to spend too long on it anyway. So. It certainly not, doesn't deserve it. Um, it's about a forensic accountant and his son on the run from unspecified malevolent uh, conspiracy forces. But what I really want to talk about is Angelina Jolie. She plays a character called Hannah and she's a, a renegade firefighter who doesn't play by the rules. Oh no, she doesn't. Hannah is something called a smoke jumper, which sounds like one of those made up movie pr professions like uh, Keanu Reeves surfer cop in Point Break. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the way that Jolie's character is introduced, it's lifted straight from the, the Tony Scott Top Gun Maverick Renegade playbook. Um, I was half expecting her to, to grab her crotch and spit. But um, you see, Hannah has demons. And we know this because everyone else in the movie is constantly reminding us that she has demons. Um, but th there's a real, uh, there's, there's a disconnect between how this character is set up and the entire rest of the movie. They're like two, two completely different, uh, there's like two completely different movies. And it is doubly disappointing when you consider that this was written and directed by Taylor Sheridan, who also wrote Sicario and the brilliant Wind River yeah. and the immense Hell or High Water. But all fantastic it, films. And are, sorry, yeah. let me just jump in for a second because yeah, I haven't yeah. seen jump this. Away. What what is <laughs> well, thank you. What has Angelina Jolie's character to do with the missing boy in the Oh account? yeah, okay. Um oh, the, the other thing is that it's I mean you don't have to tell me. But. Okay, no, I will. It takes an, it takes so long to get going, but 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 the gist of it is that the forensic accountant and the son um are they know that their lives are in danger so that they they um they travel from Florida to the wilds of Montana, where Angelina Jolie is um, a firefighter, right? Okay. But the, it wastes so much time on on pointless stuff that we we could have pieced together ourselves. And the, this this journey from Florida to to Montana by car, I felt like I was making the trip myself in real time. <laughs> it wastes. It's a long trip. It just it is. It's a it's a long trip. But I like it. And then it kind of turns into this, um, for want of a better term, it's a sort of a semi disaster action movie. Okay. But it is just, it's, 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 it's very, very weak sauce, I have to say. Um, okay. And so, like, you know, the way action movies, like you mentioned, Top Gun and mm -hmm. Toby Scott, they can be wildly entertaining. You know, yeah. if you park certain things at the door, this isn't one of those, though. It's not. And the really bizarre thing, that struck me as it was going on was you know that actor cliche this is the role i was born to play yeah angelina jolie's character is such a non-entity in this that i could literally see any other actor replacing her okay. and it would not make a blind bit of difference i have no idea what it was that appeals to angelina jolie about um those who wish me dead but it's it's a bizarre movie Aiden that's Gillen, saying something quickly Aiden Gillen yeah he's doing an American accent usually his American accent in movies starts out in New Orleans and then at the beginning of the movie and, and then goes via Boston <laughs> to Texas by the end um but he's he's not bad and and um and himself and Nicholas Holt play two hitmen um who are actually quite good um but the movie is not <laughs> <laughs> right okay uh, but but that's a shame about angelina jolie because you know she is so certain characters certain characters she's played you can't imagine anyone else playing it so this seems yeah. like the complete opposite of that it is absolutely the complete opposite and it's been yeah. a while since she's she, since she's done something like this so it's it's yeah. just i can't work out what the appeal was 
Do you not think Aidan Gillen's American accent in The Wire is bang on? I have never seen The Wire. Okay, I'll have well. to take your word for it. You do, I've, do. I've, if... I've seen him do an American accent elsewhere and they are not bang on. Okay, well, I'm impressed with his accent in The Wire. You're clearly not impressed with those who wish me dead. What stars would you give it? Um, I'm going to give it to this. If you're looking for something really, really average, then this is perfect. <laughs> It's like if I was on Tinder while I'd put up about myself, you know. So that's two for those who wish me dead. Uh, we're giving three and a half to nobody. But the highlight of the week is obviously The Father, which we're giving four stars. And all of those movies will be are, are now in the cinema at the time of talking to you. Mark, you were the real highlight, of course. Thank you. Thanks, John. Up next, Claire Hurling legend and a lot more besides Tony Griffin on his favourite movie. Screen Time. On News Talk. Now you're listening to Screen Time, News Talk's TV and movie show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well known about their favourite movie. Tony Griffin is a former Claire Hurler and All Star whose memoir in 2009, Screaming at the Sky, was one of the first Irish sports books to ever talk openly about mental health difficulties in sport in Ireland. Of the many notable things he's done in his life, you have to marvel at his cycling 7,000 kilometres across Canada for charity. And earlier this year, publishing another book. The Teenager's Book of Life that people are raving about and it appears to be going gangbusters. On top of all of that, he's one of life's true gentlemen and I'm delighted to say he joins me now to chat about his favourite movie. Tony, how are you? I'm great, John. I wish it was all those things you said, but it's very kind of you. Come, 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 come. So listen, your favourite movie, tell me and tell our listeners. Yeah, I, my favourite movie is The Royal Tenenbaums and uh, it's just every time I watch it, I, I, I see something new in it. I just think it's it's beautiful and funny and it's so many things. And I believe it's high on your list as well. I would, if I was probably asked to do this slot, not that anyone's ever asked me, why would they? It would probably be The Royal Tenenbaums as well. But enough about me, they hear too much about me. Could you tell our listeners just briefly what it's about exactly? Because lots of people wouldn't have seen it. Yeah, it's 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 about, I suppose, a dysfunctional family, and it's about, um, the the plot is, um, Gene Hackman is the the dad of the family, and they are very. He has three kids. One's adopted. Two are are his own. They're all brilliant. One's a brilliant tennis player. One's like this whiz at finance, finance and money, and the other one is an amazing um, playwright. And then he's a bit too fond of, of sowing his wild oats. So Angelica Houston, his wife, kicks him out when the kids are children. And then he, he reappears 22 years later back into their life, wanting to reunite with them, pretending to have six weeks to live. And what ensues is they're all living back in, under the one roof for the first time in 20 odd years. And it's just the chaos of that. And, and really, it's about forgiveness and it's about... Um, redemption and and it's just it's tender and it's also hilarious so it's, yes um, it's a bit of everything yeah absolutely tender and hilarious and forgiveness and all that good stuff you said to me you had a favorite line in it and i quoted one and it was a different line so what's your favorite line or your favorite scene in it it's it's a little bit dark my favorite scene uh, the scene where and i forget his name which which one of the sons he is he's a tennis quiz who basically, I'm going to give it all away now. Are we allowed to do this? Are we allowed to actually discuss? You're, you're amongst friends. Well, for those that haven't seen it, we are going to ruin it. But the, 
the tennis player, he has a breakdown, I, I think Wimbledon or one of the major championships, and he just kind of disappears. And he comes back in to it when the father is dying. He, he's been traveling around the world on the ship just to kind of escape from the world. Mm. And he comes back and moves in home. And the, the secret to the whole thing is he's madly in love with his adopted sister. And um, But he comes back at, into the house. And at one stage, he just decides that he's going to end it all. And he, he it's a, just a, it's an unbelievable. It, do you know what? It stuck with me. Mm. all these years later i watched it again the other night um i haven't seen it in a few years but um the music elliot smith's tune yeah. playing in the background needle in the hay which is a great song mm. and you see him shaving off his he's like his long hair you see him taking off his sunglasses for the first time in the movie he shaves his beard really meticulously so you know there's something about to happen mm. and then he just says to himself in the mirror um tomorrow I'm going to kill myself. And then mm. he, it sounds awfully morbid, but he cuts his own wrists then. But the scene is so powerful. I've never forgotten it. And, mm-hmm. and it, it's that, that kind of, I think there's, a, there's many turning points in the movie, but that's one of them where the whole family rally around him and they're reconnected around him. And uh, it's, it, it, and there's, there's kind of flavors of little, little Miss Sunshine in it. It's yeah. that like, people who are disillusioned at life Re- refining the joy of life at a yeah. different level. And that sounds very dark, and that particular bit is, but it is an amazing piece of cinema at the same time with the music and the way it builds up that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, this is very much a movie of redemption and forgiveness. It. It, it's important to stress that. My favourite line, and we're trying to make this about you, Tony, but what a lot of people love in that is just, again, it's part of a spoiler, but towards the end, when the Ben Stiller character says to Gene Hackman, we've had a hard year. And he just puts his arm around him and says, I know you have, Chazzy. I know you have. Oh, man. Gets yeah, me every that, time. That's a great line. It's outside the house. Yeah. The yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Look, I think maybe favorite line is different to favorite scene. Yes, true. The, the reason I love that scene is it's just so powerful and potent um, and the music. But there's so many scenes like uh, <laughs> there's a few. There's a scene where Gene Hackman is saying that uh, telling his two grandsons, which Chazzy have, has, hasn't let his son Chazzy hasn't let um, the grandsons meet the, the father because he's mm-hmm. so angry how he let them down yeah. and disappointed him and walked out. And um, he's, uh, he's the two grandsons are kind of knocking around with their granddad having a day out. And they're, again, it's more scenes and lines, but like they're jumping in the back of buses, they're diving off a chair <laughs> into the swimming pool, they're, they're water bombing a car and they're just yeah. having this wild abandoned fun and, and you know that he's an interesting character Gene Hackman plays because in some ways he's so self-centered and yet he kind of saves them all through yeah. coming back into their lives. They're all stuck and he he jolts them out of it. Yeah. Well, that's that's very well described. And we better move on before we go down to Wes Anderson, Royal Tannenbaum's rabbit hole here, quoting lines at each other. But uh, I know you rewatched it as well. So I do appreciate you doing that. And let me ask you then slightly outside of the movies. Now, I mentioned your book, uh, Screaming at the Sky. And, you know, nowadays there are lots of memoirs about sports stars struggling uh, with mental health issues and all that. And that's a good thing. I'm not bemoaning it or anything. But, you know, 10, 11, 12 years ago, that was a bit of a chance you were taking to be so candid. Did it feel that way at the time? You know, I, I was fortunate, John, that I found a brilliant compatriot to write it with me. TJ Flynn was his name. And we both egged each other on. And, we, and it was based on four years of my diary. So mm-hmm. he was there in front of me. We couldn't, 
hide from some of the, the writing and we wanted to bring that writing into the book and at the time I didn't know what I was doing but when it was published a lot of people contacted me didn't know me and said are you sure this is okay like could we somehow buy all those books back from all the bookshops and just burn them because like people are going to read about you and that's you know about where you what you maybe come through and I said well that's that's the intention because I know so many other fellas that maybe play elite sports or or just people who they kind of silently pull themselves through a difficult patch and then say nothing about it but I think we're all better off when we realize we're not alone in, in the world. And um, so the book still, people still contact me about it, um, which 10 years on is bizarre. Yeah. And that brings us, I suppose, to y- your latest book and also what you didn't like, because in a way that candidness, I suppose, changed your life because you've become, maybe this is the wrong phrase, but a mental health advocate of sorts because of your honesty in that book. I think I, I think I'm a people advocate. Um, okay. I'm, I'm a humanity. Like I'm a, let's just cut the, the BS. Like we're all, we're all on this fast moving planet, moving through space. Like there's a lot of reasons to be afraid. Um, and yet courage is such a beautiful characteristic that I, I suppose I, I started working with teenagers 10 years ago because in some ways I just fell into it. And it's kind of like the Royal Tenenbaums. It's about discovery and about curiosity. And it's about, you know, finding a, a life and figuring out a life that is meaningful to you. And, and so I'm more so about people and interested in people than I suppose I am just necessarily mental health because that's mm-hmm. such a narrow part of who people are. Sure, sure. Well, that, that that's a good point. So then the Teenagers Book of Life, uh, as I said, it's been going gangbusters and you were telling me off air all the places it's going to be stocked yeah. shortly as well. So this, for the people who haven't read it, and unfortunately I'm one of them because my kids are all still below the watermark of teenage so i haven't got to that yet now that's no all excuse right. but just give us the, the snapshot of of why you wrote it and what's in it yeah i'd spent these 10 years as i said listening to teenagers and like really listening to them not only in ireland but in in canada and australia mm-hmm. and one of the things i learned is it's all very much the same things that young people struggle with and yeah, our education system isn't at a stage that can perhaps help them discover who they are in that period of their life. And look, every de- decade in a human's life is difficult. It's just the teenage years have even more challenges, I think, in some ways. So I had this affinity for teenagers and I wanted to kind of, you know, call them over into the corner and say, look, the adults haven't a clue what they're doing, really. They're making it up as well. So <laughs> but here are some things you might you might benefit from knowing, which are all the things they talk about in workshops that they tell each other. And and I just put it all in a book. And our son, Jesse, was a few weeks old and I used to be driving him to try and get him to sleep. He'd bag colic up around the Wicklow Mountains. And just the phrases in the chapters kept writing themselves. And I'd race home and he was down, write it. And nine weeks later, the book was there. And I have a good friend who's a great illustrator and she came on board. And we just said, can we write a travel guide for a teenager? that no matter what background they're from, they can relate to. And it's a bit of a Trojan horse because if a parent picks it up, they'll say, so this is how I can relate to my teenager. Mm. Wow. And we're hearing a lot back that it's actually connecting. Like one one kid, their grandparent died. They hadn't talked about it. They wanted to, but they didn't want to upset the parent. The last chapter in the book is on death. And then... And my two sons are in the book throughout Romy and Bear. They have a conversation about adults and what adults forget about life mm-hmm. as they get older. So parents are using it, teachers are using it, and 
most of all teenagers are are flicking and reading it which um which is which is a beautiful thing so it's it's out there and, uh, and and people all over the world are buying it which i'm kind of saying to myself how did that happen how, how is a mother in california or a dad in norway where are they hearing about this book yeah well, on, on shows like screen time and news talk obviously you know yeah, tell me this to to even spread the net further people can get that on amazon or on your website or, or... yeah so there's a website the teenagers book of and from and it's in it's in bookstores all around the country and from next week on um it'll be in done stores so people will be able to get it when they're getting their their messages <laughs> wonderful wonderful well his favorite movie is the Royal Tannenbaums. Tony Griffin to ape the movie is having a good year. Thanks a million. Ah, thanks, John. Jazz has those boys cooped up like a pair of jackrabbits, Ethel. He has his reasons. Well, I know that, but you can't raise boys to be scared of life. You gotta brew some recklessness into them. I think that's terrible advice. No, you don't. A short clip there of Gene Hackman and Angelica Houston from the wonderful Royal Tannenbaums, as chosen by Tony Griffin as his favourite movie. And there's no argument from me for that as someone's favourite movie, because it's probably mine. And it's the first time anyone's chosen it in the two plus years I've been doing this show. So make of that what you will. Oh, and I should also mention that Tony's Griffin, The Teenager's Guide to Life, is available wherever you get good books. That is it for this week. My thanks to Anne-Marie Kane, who helped on in the show this week, as she does every week. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 p.m. on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6 p.m. right here on Newstalk Radio. I'm open all week long on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screen time at Newstalk.com. Have a great, safe week, and talk to you all next week.